Hey, everybody that couldn't make it. Sorry, I forgot to start the recording. <laughs> we are talking about, we're just going through the chapters right now, chapters 18 through 20 in 1 Samuel, and uh, we're just kind of reviewing everything. Uh, the overarching theme in these chapters that we've talked about is Saul's jealousy, and we have looked at how four different times, four different ways, Saul tries to kill David in chapter 18. Uh, and then in chapter 19, Jonathan talks his dad off the cliff at first, but then David is successful again, and Saul can't handle it, is extremely envious. And then David's wife, Michael, helps him to escape to Samuel. But that night before he escaped, David pins Psalm 59. So we were just discussing Psalm 59. I want to read to you verse 9, where he says, Oh, my strength. I will watch for you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. I just love this faith. So obviously, Michael, if she is an idol worshiper, is not getting in the way of David's faith in the Lord. He is looking to God for protection. And then verse 16 of that psalm, he says, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. And I don't know if all of this happened with the prophets and the prophesying the next morning, but if you think about the scenario of events here, God answered that prayer. He protected David. He was a fortress to David. And I just think that's so cool. We'll get back to that here in a few minutes. Now, eventually, Saul tries to go himself, right? And he ends up doing the same thing, falling on the ground day and night. We don't know. Maybe that was, maybe it was 24 hours prophesying before the Lord. It says he's naked, but that may not mean he's actually naked. What it most likely means is that he has stripped himself of all of his royal robes. So he could have his undergarments on, but the picture is him humbled, no longer with his royal robes on, just a man fallen before God, praising him with no choice but to praise him. Just now I thought, you know, at the end times, that's humanity with no choice but to fall on their face and praise God. What a picture of that, right? They will, humanity will have no choice in the end times but praise the Lord. Then we come to chapter 20. And what takes place between David and Jonathan in chapter 20? A plan to see if Saul wanted to kill him. Yes, a plan. Absolutely. They come up, and I think it's a pretty good plan, actually, to see David's going to go say that he is going to go to his family for the new moon celebration, but he's not really, and they're just going to see how angry Saul gets. And Saul gets extremely angry, right? He is irate, and he is vulgar towards his own son. He throws a spear at Jonathan, just as he did at David, and he calls him the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. But the irony is that Jonathan is actually the son of a perverse and rebellious man. He is the son of Saul, who is rebellious and absolutely perverse. 
So at that moment then, Jonathan may have wondered, I don't know if my dad really wants to kill you, but at that point, he knew for sure his dad, his intent was to kill David. Saul's intent was to kill David, and he goes and he tells David, you have to escape now. Flee. You have to go for your life. We're going to talk about his words to David here at the end. Um, We'll get to that. So Jonathan is certainly someone to emulate in these verses. If anyone should have been envious of David, it should have been Jonathan. He, He had really every right to be king. I mean, the crazy thing is that Jonathan would have actually been a really good choice. He was godly. He had faith just as David had faith. I mean, that's why their souls were knit together. Jonathan is so excited that there's somebody else that loves the Lord like he does and believes in the Lord like, like he does. Jonathan had been doing that on his own. That was one of the things that stuck out to me was their friendship and how, we, like, I have some friends who our relationship is centered on Christ and bound together by yes. the Lord. And it's just a different type of relationship. Absolutely. Anytime our friendships are centered in Christ, it is a different type of relationship, isn't it? There is just, there is something that knits you together and you're just bonded. But if I have a conversation with those of my friends who don't believe in the Lord, it's, I can't share with them the depth of my, my heart. You know, I can't share with, I could tell them the reasons I do something or my thinking behind something, but there's just that understanding is not, is not there. So, I mean, you can imagine Jonathan's excitement to realize he's got this kindred spirit in this boy, David, um, this warrior, really, that's emerging. And he's not envious. And that, I mean, that's, that's amazing. He's not envious at all. And, you know, that being said, Jonathan is also a man after God's own heart. But here's the thing. God did not choose Jonathan. Jonathan was not God's choice. And that's something that we might need to grapple with a little bit. Sometimes we may not be God's choice for something in particular. God has still chosen us. We are still his, and he still has a plan. He still has a purpose. He still has things he's doing in our lives. But we may not be God's choice for something Maybe that we even want. You know, I don't know if at any point Jonathan wanted the kingdom, but he loved the Lord too much to let that get in the way. He was for God's kingdom, not for his own kingdom. And I think that really made a big difference. So what I want to focus on tonight then is where we see Saul go wrong compared to where we see Jonathan do right. So we see a big contrast between these two. So there's two words we could use for Saul. We could either say that he's jealous or we could say that he's envious. So they're really, they're kind of the same. In a lot of ways, they're the same. They're the two sides of the same coin, we could say. They're both sins. In many ways, they're interchangeable. When we want something that belongs to someone else, we can either be described as being envious or jealous. We We could use either word. But there are some differences. Envy always has an outward focus. That's one difference. Uh, You want something that you don't have that someone else does have. While jealousy can also include 
a strong, protective feeling of something that already belongs to you. But envy always has that outward focus. So, for example, a boyfriend or a husband might be jealous when he sees his girlfriend or his wife talking to another man because that's his girl. That girl belongs to him. So you see that that's a type of jealousy then of something that's already his. The Bible does tell us that God is jealous over us. So that's something that's a little different with jealousy too. It can have a positive side to it, whereas envy never has a positive side. Envy never, there's never anything positive about envy. So when we look at God's jealousy, for example, Psalm 78, 58 says of Israel, for they provoked him, God, to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. Israel belonged to God, and he was jealous for what belonged to him. So jealous, in fact, that when we, humanity, were ripped away from God due to sin, he wouldn't have it. He was not going to have it. We belong to him, and so he did the unthinkable, right, and paid the penalty for our sins on the cross so that we could be with him. That's some intense and beautiful jealousy. So it's a good example of jealousy for you. Paul also talks about being jealous. He says in 2 Corinthians 11:2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. So Paul saw that the Corinthian believers were slipping in their devotion to Christ. And as a loving husband would jealously guard his wife's affections, Paul seeks to jealously guard the hearts of his spiritual children. So jealousy can be a good thing. I think, and you guys have probably experienced this too, but I've experienced some godly jealousy before. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> this is maybe fitting. Uh, at the end of the first presidential debate, I just turned it on for like the last 10 minutes. And at the end of it, Biden uh, gave humanity credit for floods, hurricanes, storms, natural disasters. You know, apparently we are now in charge of all of those things. And we control all of those things, but there is only one, and we know who he is, who commands the wind and the waves and the storms and tells the lightning bolts where to go and floods the earth or causes hurricanes. God does all of that. And I was instantly jealous, I'm going to call it that, for what belonged to God. Credit for his sovereignty over the nature, over the elements of the earth. I was jealous for that. I mean, I had a really hard time going to sleep, and I was ready the next morning to post something all over social media. <laughs> Craig was like, slow down, <laughs> slow down. But I get that way sometimes when I feel like God's truth is being misrepresented or God's character is being misrepresented. I get very jealous for his character to be upheld the way it's supposed to be upheld. Okay. But jealous, any other jealousy than a godly jealousy, than a jealousy that is centered on the Lord for his purposes, is not a good thing. So we can draw the line pretty quick on what's a good type of jealousy and, and what is not. 
And as I mentioned right at the beginning, you know, the nature of the beast is that we live in this world with social media where it's just always before us, where, where we hop on for a few minutes, this for a mental break, and where we were fine a few minutes ago, and, and then we get on social media and see that, you know, Miss Betty over there has a new outfit, and all of a sudden we're discontent with our clothes, and then so-and-so has amazing family portraits, and we haven't had a family portrait in a year, and then we're envious of these perfect, you know, family portraits. We just went through fall break, and I would get on there, and I would look through everybody that's at the beach, and everybody that's taking vacations, and I am envious of them being able to go on a vacation. What's the first thing I think? I'll never be able to go on a fall vacation because my husband is always working. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I go from a place of contentment to being completely discontent. And if I let it go so far, envious. I want what those people have, and I don't have it. And if I don't get control of that, it turns into a lot of other things, a lot of other sins. Envy causes a lot of anger. Envy causes a lot of resentment. It very quickly gets between you and God. It's extremely, extremely destructive. Suddenly, what God has given me is not enough anymore because he decides what I have, right? He gives me good gifts. He gives me blessings. So if that's the case, then all of a sudden I've decided, I've, I've made a case against God. You haven't given me something that I want. That sounds really selfish. Here's your first principle for the night. (laughs) It is self-destructive to count the blessings of others instead of our own. It is self-destructive to count the blessings of others instead of our own. Now, I'm not saying we can't count the blessings of others. We just don't need to do it in place of our own. So if we can do it and be happy for the people, by all means, that's what we're supposed to do. Come alongside them, count their blessings with them, and be joyful with them. But if we can't do it, the only reason we're doing it is to compare it to our own. That's a destructive place to be. Proverbs 14.13 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy makes the bones rot. Proverbs 14, 30. I don't know if I said 13, but 30. Proverbs 14, 30. Envy can literally kill you. It can make your bones rot. It can just get inside of you, and it just eats away at you. It eats away at your joy. eats away at your relationship with the Lord. And then eventually... It can lead to murder, adultery, theft, rape, slander, literally killing other people too. It's just like this train that just doesn't stop once it gets going. And that root is really hard to pull out. So the Bible has a lot to say about envy, actually. James 3, 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Isn't that interesting? Every vile practice where jealousy exists, where envy exists. Psalm 37, 1 through 3, 
says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I love verse four and I had never really put it together with verse one before about do not be envious. Do not want the things that they have. God will give you the right desires. Want him, want him. If you envy anything, Envy, envy the Lord. I want you, Lord. That's an okay place to be right there. Ecclesiastes 4.4 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. When you really start to break it down and you think about it, are a lot of the things we do due to envy? Of the flesh? when we were talking about the spirit versus the flesh, when we do things out of the flesh, I think I can trace a lot of that back to envy. I envy a lot what other people have. I want what they have. And God, you haven't given it to me. And then you look at the 10th commandment. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. God knew this would be a struggle for us. So he made it one of the 10 commandments. And I'll give you a personal example of something that I really have to guard against. I would love to publish a book. It has been a dream of mine for a long time. I have made strides in that direction, and I do feel like the Lord has opened certain doors, but he has not necessarily opened that door yet. And maybe he will one day, and maybe he won't. I honestly don't know if that's God's plan for me to write a book. And I know that I could self-publish, but there's just something about doing it the traditional way and knowing that I didn't shove the door open by self-publishing a book, but I allowed the Lord to direct me in that, I would love for that to happen. So I have to watch, though, when other new authors get the opportunity to publish a book, I can go to some dangerous places in my mind and get really envious of them. They have something that I want. They have a book with their name on it, and I don't, and I don't know if I ever will. So in that moment, I have a choice to make. I can either begrudge their success, which may be a wonderful thing. Their book may t tell millions of people about Jesus, and there's no reason that I need to begrudge that. Or I can celebrate the open door God gave them and that God is using them. In that moment for that thing, they were God's choice. I was not God's choice, but he's still chosen me. Okay, and I am to be content with that. And we'll talk about how we can be content with that here very soon. James 4.2 says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That, to me, sounds like Saul's theme song. Right? You desire and do not have, so you murder. I wonder if... Uh, James, through the Spirit, had Saul in mind when he wrote that verse. It just seems so fitting. Here's, here's the bottom line with envy. It acts like God owes us so much more than we've already received. But we've already received every blessing there is to receive in Jesus Christ, right? And we have so much more promised to us. We're all promised the same amazing things. Really, we're all on the same playing field 
uh, as far as our inheritance goes and the things that we have to look forward to. So does God owe us anything? No, he doesn't owe us anything. When we let envy dwell within our minds, it destroys our appetite for God. It absolutely destroys our appetite. Envy is really a grudge against God. If he's the giver of all things, and we don't have something that we want, then it's God who is withholding it from me. If we want to look at it that way, envy is really the root of what happened in the Garden of Eden. When we think about it, it could also be pride, but envy, I think, is definitely a part of it. Eve became envious of the fruit of that tree that she could not have. But think about it. Eve already had perfection. She already had perfection. Yet she was envying that fruit that she couldn't have. I love the way Tim Keller put this. He said, envy is so powerful, it will make you think something is wrong in paradise. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> envy is lethal. It is absolutely lethal. And we willingly swallow it a lot more than we should. So here's your second principle. We're already to number two. Envy is a destructive cancer of the soul. Envy is a destructive cancer of the soul. Here's a good definition for you. Envy is weeping when other people rejoice and rejoicing when other people weep. Just think about that for a minute. Envy is weeping when other people rejoice. You can't be happy for them. And it's rejoicing at other people's weeping, their downfall. You're happy about it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, because what is our biblical command? It's to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, right? That is Romans 12, 15. So let's think about Saul a little more. It is literally envy that destroyed him when you look at it. He had so much, right? He was king. Let's not forget he was king, that God had given him every opportunity. He had given him equal opportunity because he had given him his spirit. So Saul had the opportunity to bring glory to God, and he blew it. He's really the only one to blame. He needs to blame himself, not David at all. He had already achieved the highest status that he could. Initially, I think Saul is glad that David is working for him. I do think initially there was some, welcome aboard, buddy. You know, I do think there was some, some love there at first. But then with the ticker tape parade that occurs, his true feelings come out. And he cannot handle the fact that all of these people are loving David way more than him. That. Yes. If I bring on a really good worker or a good teammate, like it's going to end up making me look even better. And then all of a sudden his shadow, like, yes. I think you are exactly right. Um, look at, or write down if you want, 1 Samuel 14 52. I think that's exactly right, Jessica. It says, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. You know, so he's doing it 
to make himself look good. He's doing it to raise himself up. And these people are on to him. If you remember back in, what, what chapter was it? Chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, he takes credit for Jonathan's defeat of the Philistine garrison, right? He, he, so he's going to try and probably do that again, only this time he's at the front of the parade. Woohoo, look at me. And he doesn't get the credit like he usually did or that he wanted. He cannot handle that. He becomes furious. Verse 12 says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed Saul. So why do you think, what do you, what do you think, it says that a couple of times, why do you think Saul was afraid? I'm just speculating. Saul knew that the Lord was with David, mm-hmm. and I think that there was a part of Saul who feared the Lord. Mm-hmm. He just continued to make himself bigger than the Lord. I think so, so too. I think that there had to be a part of him that mm-hmm. knowing that David was so closely knit to, to the Lord's heart that he, yeah, you know, yeah. probably feared what the Lord would do to him because of David. Sure. Because of his feelings. That's true. Yeah, maybe he feared <coughs> what David would do to him because of that. Yes. So he's going to try and be on the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Offensive side of that, not the defensive side of that. Yeah. And it, you know, I don't know if Saul so much envied the relationship David had with God, but I definitely think it envied, he envied the power that gave David and definitely the success that that, that gave David. Um, I think if there's any envy there with the relationship that David had with the Lord, I don't think it was there for the right reasons at all. You know, Saul was offered the same relationship with the Lord. He just wouldn't receive it. Yes, and he wouldn't repent, right? Right. So if we think of what, just think how the story could have been different if he had repented at this point. If he had realized the root of envy in his heart and gone to the Lord and repented of that, that we can change our story anytime we want to by humbling ourselves before the Lord, right? Saul could have changed his story here, but he wasn't. And, well, really, I don't think envy allowed him to do that. It was too deep inside of him. Uh, And, you know, it really made him irrational, too. God was actually granting Saul incredible victories through David. So the kingdom is growing through David, but he can't see that. He can't recognize that. Envy blinds us to God's goodness sometimes. We can't see it in the present when we have all of that envy inside of us. So what does Saul do then? Well, I mean, it's, it's irrational when this great warrior, the leader of your army, is winning to remove him and make him the commander of a thousand. That is an irrational move for Saul to do that, that's what envy does. Envy does not think rationally at all. And it blinds us to God's goodness in the present. Couldn't see it. And yet still, 1814, David had success in all his undertakings. For the Lord was with him. Just as Amy said, the Lord was with him. And you guys, that was such a sweet reminder to me. 
of, of you know, we can think about politics, we can think about what's going on, we can think about our personal lives. There's going to be things that worry us, that concern us. Um, maybe in your own life, you have someone that begrudges you, that you have no idea why. It's like their, their thinking is so irrational. You have nothing against them, and yet they just hate you or say unkind things to you. Maybe they're envious of you, and it was such a sweet reminder to me of our marching orders, and that is to let God deal with it and to make sure we're right with the Lord. So David just went with his thousand men and worked with that, and God gave him success. And I loved that. I just loved thinking about, you know, whatever happens in the future, whatever happens in our nation, my marching orders are to be faithful to the Lord, and he will be with me. He will walk with me. That's just kind of a sweet spot for me this week as I, I thought about David just going with it. Okay, you're going to reduce me to that. <laughs> I'll go. And God still gave him success. Now, in contrast, in the second half of chapter 18, we do see David's humility uh, in contrast to Saul's pride and envy. Uh, one of the prizes for beating Goliath was to marry the king's daughter, right? So David had every right to marry Saul's oldest daughter. What was her name again? Mirab? Mirab? Yes. But he actually says in verse 18, Who am I and who are my relatives that I should be son-in-law to the king? David knows he's the Lord's anointed, and yet he takes the stance that his family is nothing compared to Saul's. Now, who am I to marry the king's daughter and be son-in-law to the king? Meanwhile, Saul adds a, a caveat to this marriage. Here's my daughter, which he should have willingly given David just as a prize for beating Goliath. Here's my daughter, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles for me. Do it for me, right? Here's my daughter. Why? Well, he did all of that in hopes of getting David killed by the Philistines. Welcome to the family. I hope you get killed in war. <laughs> Basically what he's saying, but... We know Merib does not marry David. For whatever reason, she's given to a different man. And then Saul sees another opportunity, like we talked about with Michael, in hopefully ensnaring him by, first of all, making David have to pay a large bride price, uh, which he does very successfully, doubling the price with 200 Philistine foreskins. And whether or not Michael was an idol worshiper, that did not trip up David. That was not going to get in his in the way of his relationship with the Lord. Verse 30 then in chapter 18 is telling, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. So no matter what Saul did, it did not matter. It did not matter. God's will was not going to be stopped and the Lord was with David and Saul hated him for it. Envy is an aggressive cancer of the soul. We know the rest then. Okay, we've already gone through that story. Saul's intent to marry, or to marry, to murder David intensifies as we continue. Jonathan does initially talk him off the ledge, uh, but then things get crazy again as we move through chapter 19. Now, I just, I, I, loved thinking about those different men when David escapes to Samuel. <laughs> those different 
groups of messengers or men or warriors, whoever they were, going and trying to apprehend David and then falling on their face before the Lord and prophesying. It's such a great picture of the power of the word of God. That's what, in their prof, prof, the word of God is prophecy. So it's like round one, Saul's men versus the word of God. Bam, word of God wins. Round two, Saul's men versus the word of God. Word of God wins again. Round three, same thing happens. And then Saul goes, David's enemy goes. What happens? The word of God wins. Isn't that so cool? You guys, the word of God is so powerful. We need to not underestimate how powerful it really is when we're praying, when we're praying for our nation, when we're praying for our kids, when we're praying for just our faith. You know, this is so powerful and nothing could stand up against the word of God. So here is another principle for you. Envy will not stop the word of God, but it will stop the word of God from penetrating our hearts. Envy will not stop the word of God, but it will stop the word of God from penetrating our hearts. Envy will not stop the word of God, but it will stop the word of God from penetrating our hearts. I don't want that. I do not want the word of God to stop penetrating my heart. That's the only thing that works. <laughs> That's the only thing powerful enough to change me, you know. I do not want envy to get in the way of that. So how do we guard against envy? That's what we need to figure out. And Jonathan shows us how. He's the hero this week. Well, Christ is the hero, but Jonathan shows us Christ this week. Look back then at the beginning of chapter 18 to those first four verses of chapter 18. I'm going to read them. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Jonathan had so much more to lose than Saul. I don't know how old Saul was at this point, but Jonathan was next in line for the kingdom. And we've already talked about how he too was a man after God's own heart. He had a, he had a lot he could have complained about to the Lord. He could have been extremely envious of David, but that's not the case. And in this extremely stunning act, Jonathan gives David his robe and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. And what's so amazing about that 
his robe. He took off the robe he had on. He took off his royal robe, the symbol of his kingship. He basically takes off his crown in doing so and hands it to David. Oh, just think about that picture. And then he gives him his sword. If we think back, I forget what chapter it was, at one point, Jonathan and Saul were the only two who had swords. So that was a very valuable item in his possession. But what it said was, uh, in handing him, in taking the, the handle and facing it towards David, the end of the sword is facing Jonathan, right? That's a dangerous place to put yourself. But what it's saying is, here, command me. I am your servant. You have my sword and I make myself vulnerable to you. That's amazing. I have goosebumps right now, by the way. <laughs> this is remarkable that Jonathan is not envious at all. Why? How can he not be envious of David? I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that I wouldn't have been. But he's not at all. And I think he conquers envy in three ways. You get a bonus tonight. You don't just get three principles. You get three ways that he conquered envy. First of all, he grasped the biblical meaning of love. He grasped the biblical meaning of love. True love cannot envy. That's what 1 Corinthians 13, 4 tells us. It says, love does not envy. <laughs> True love can't envy because love is the opposite of envy. So real love, when we stop to think about it, if it's the opposite of envy, real love is putting your happiness into someone else's happiness. You're happy if they're happy. Marriage. Marriage, yes. I pray. I pray that's marriage, yes. <laughs> You're happy if they're happy, and you weep if they weep, right? There's the biblical command, but also the, a great definition of love for us, meaning the more someone else flourishes, the happier we are for them. We love it. We love it. We celebrate with them. Jonathan shows us that kind of love. He is glad for David. He is excited for David. He rejoices with David that God has sent a Savior for them, for Israel. Salvation is coming through David, and Jonathan celebrates that. This kind of love does not come naturally to us. We don't do this in our flesh at all. It comes from Christ. It's his love. It's how he loves, and it's how he's loved us. Look at this incredible picture we get from Jonathan. What does Jonathan do when he takes off his robe and his belt and his sword? He makes himself nothing in order to lift up someone else. What does that sound like? Jesus. It sounds like Jesus. I was going to say a mom. <laughs> we moms need to give ourselves more credit. <laughs> I do empty myself a lot, let me tell you. <laughs> I love that. But it shows us Christ. And hopefully we moms are mirroring Christ's love day in and day out, emptying ourselves for our families. 
I need to remember that. <laughs> Philippians 2 is where we find that. Philippians 2 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, the mind of Christ, right? Having the same love. There's the word love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It is ours in Christ. We have it in Christ. We can do this in Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ took off his royal robe. He emptied himself before us and basically handed us the sword. And we killed him with it. Wow. But do you know why he did it? To lift us up. He did it for love. Because... His joy is our joy. His happiness is in our happiness. He's not withholding things from us. He is loving us. His happiness is in our happiness. He could have... He, well, he's showing us the opposite of envy, right? Could... He can't because he's perfect, but if you think about it, Jesus didn't envy the fact that God wanted, us, God wanted to make us a part of things. Don't give it to them. They don't deserve it. No, not at all. Instead, he went to the Father and he's like, look, the only way that I can have them, the only way that my joy will ever be complete is if their joy is our joy. And the only way to do that is for me to take what they deserve. So let me go and do that. I don't know if that's how the conversation went. <laughs> but that's what he did for us. That's what he did. So that we could flourish in him. So that he could celebrate over us in him. Do you see that love? Do you see that love and how it's the opposite of envy? Jonathan had to grasp the biblical meaning of love in order to do what he did. And that's Christ. He shows us Christ. Number two, Jonathan understood the treasure he had in God. Jonathan understood the treasure he had in God. He didn't need the kingdom. He had God. God was his true reward. So I think Jonathan looked to the future. I think Jonathan understood there was a future inheritance that was worth more than having this kingdom right now, you know? And when we realize the greatness and the blessing and the wonder of all that we have in Christ, that's when we can suppress that envy. When we focus on what we have coming to us in the future, 
Eternity grants every single one of us the opportunity to be, to be content right now. If we stop and think about the wonder of what's coming, of what we get to one day experience, of living surrounded by and in and with the awesome glory of God all the time, nothing that we could ever want this side of heaven compares to what we're going to get in heaven. Right? We have, just like Pastor Mike said on Sunday, an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, being kept in heaven for us by God's power. That's amazing. So here's the bottom line. We will not be swayed by trinkets when we think we need... By, I'm going to start over. We will not be swayed by trinkets we think we need when we focus on the treasure we have in Christ. So many little things that we think we need. You know, I'll get on social media and everyone's got all these cute fall decorations on their front porch. Eh, I don't have anything. But I might be envious of their cute fall decorations. There's so many trinkets we think we need. But when we focus on the treasure we have in Christ, all that just fades in the background. This is one of the biggest helps for us as far as our fight against envy is focusing on the treasure we already have in Christ. It makes everything else seem so much less. Number three, Jonathan embraced God's plan. Jonathan embraced God's plan. So to end tonight, I'm going to go to the end of chapter 20. Jonathan and David are talking, and they make a covenant with each other. I don't know if this is a, just a renewal of the first covenant they made or if this is a new covenant, but uh, I think they see now, more than they did in the beginning, that things are taking some turns that they didn't expect. So in, in verse 13, Jonathan says, But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die, and do not cut off from your steadfast do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan understood that David was God's plan. So he got behind God's plan. And he made him safe, himself safe inside God's plan. That's where he put himself. He didn't fight against it. He embraced it. And there, there is a, a, a stronghold, a safe stronghold of just being in the will of God and embracing that. Jonathan goes on to say in verse 16, And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Who is included as one of David's enemies? His, father. His own father. Jonathan's own family. Jonathan is fully embracing the will of the Lord, no matter what it is, even if it means his own father is killed or he himself is killed which is what happens and he has a covenant he knows he has a covenant with David that David will do all he can to show steadfast love to Jonathan's family 
but he puts himself, Jonathan puts himself in God's hands and embraces God's plan. Saul had said to Jonathan earlier in 2031, as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. But that's not what Jonathan cared about. He cared about God's kingdom over and above his own, bringing us right back to a theme that we've talked about several times so far this semester, God's kingdom come and God's will be done. That's what Jonathan embraced. He embraced God's plan for God's kingdom and God's will. And that is how you fight against envy. You love with the biblical love, with the mind of Christ. You understand the treasure that you have in Christ and the inheritance you have coming to you, already established for you, and you embrace God's plan, whatever God's will is, trusting him. He is a good and loving father. We have a savior who emptied himself in order to lift us up. So we can trust him. I mean, anyone that would go and do that for you, he's trustworthy. Envy will not get you what you want. It will only strip you of what you need. And what we really need is a God-filled heart. That's what we need. That's how we're going to fight envy. And envy strips us of that. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And it really is. I'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for just so sweetly directing us, Father. I just pray that if there's any roots of envy, bitterness, resentment, just growing in our hearts, that you will pull those out. You will uproot them, Father, that nothing will get in the way of our relationship with you. I don't want to live in envy of other people or things, Lord. I want to live for you. I want you to be my hope, you to be my desire, Lord. And I pray that for all of these women and for the women who couldn't be here tonight. Just hold them close, Lord, as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.